program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. So I gotta tell you, you know a band has released a kick-ass album when it can actually dethrone your favorite album? Like, you guys know that Ice Nine Kills, Welcome to Horrorwood was like my current obsession. Like, I've been in love with this album since it came out in October. Well, along come Ghost, and they released this new album called Impera, uh, we already had songs like um, Hunter's Moon and Call Me Little Sunshine. These songs, these singles had already been released, but now the full album comes out. And I gotta say, I think as it stands right now, and I understand the year is young, so I mean, many things can happen. But currently right now, this is my album of the year. I am bloody obsessed with it. I can't stop listening to it. The whole thing is so great, very melodic. Um, it's it's a great mixture. <laughs> I mean, how do you, how do you describe Ghosts? They're not exactly the easiest band to describe, but it's like classic rock meets eighties metal meets a bit of pop music, even because it's very melodic, all laced with like little satanic references, and then there's references to like you know current life that we live in, and st- I mean, it's such a great mixture and. I can't stop listening to it. And it's weird because the first time I listened to it, I was like, all right, that's good. It's not a bad album. And then I didn't listen to it for a couple of days. I was like, well, I'll just let it sit. And then I went back to it. The next thing I know, I'm playing songs over and over again. And I'm playing the album over and over again. I, the song 20s, I must have played it like a good... There was one night I was at work and I just... I hit repeat on just that song. It must have played for an hour straight, just repeating over and over. And the the song is like three minutes long. So three minutes, you know, playing it for an hour, that's like 20 listens. (laughs) I just, I became obsessed with it. Um, I can't say enough about it. The whole album is just a great experience. And I mean, there's what, 12 tracks, I believe it is. uh, Songs like Griftwood, Respite on the Spittlefields, Kaiserian, 20s. 20s is a fucking banger. Watcher in the Sky, obviously Hunter's Moon, Call Me Little Sunshine. I mean, the whole album is just so great. I'm I'm making it my Lurker's Recommendation. <laughs> and I haven't done that for a couple episodes, but yeah, Lurker's Recommendation. Check out the new Ghost album. I will say, yes, it's not as good as Prequel was. Their last album, that, would, that was top A-plus fucking great amazing album like i mean i i don't even know how to describe it it was just that fucking good but this is a very close second at least in my opinion uh and i know a lot of people have different favorite albums and whatnot of the band i mean it, it's natural it nine inch nails my favorite album is actually broken which is an ep and you know some people will tell you downward spiral is the best some people will tell you the fragile and so, i mean it all depends on your taste but for me i have to say impera is probably my second favorite album by ghost 
And who knows if that's even where it stays. It may eventually become my favorite. I don't know. I, prequel was just too damn good, though. I, I don't know. But now, from a really awesome ghost to a ghost host without the most. From the next level network of podcasts and Studio Zero, we will break away together. I'll be your shadow. You'll be the light. Welcome back, everyone, to What Lurks, what lurks Behind, behind podcast, podcast Zero. And this week will be the show to end all shows. Sort of like our featured review of the week. Horror Hound once called this movie the slasher to end all slashers. And well, you know, I guess the joke was on them because the slasher genre has never really died. (laughs) But hey, April Fool's on them, right? Uh, Yes, kids, in the 120th episode... The episode to be the last of its kind, hosted by Postmortem Paul. This week, the podcast dives deep into the prank-filled thriller comedy from director Fred Walton. This week, April Fool's Day. But first... Okay, so... Did you see the photos of our new Dracula? Did you see this abomination? This scourge? This... Heavenly Angel? Oh, Nick Cage, you national treasure, you. Okay, so so yes, there's that film Renfield coming out. And I believe it was People Magazine released photos on the internet of what Dracula is going to look like. Dracula being played by Nicolas Cage. And going based on the color scheme of Cage's apparel and jewelry, I'm now starting to think that this film is going to be done in black and white when it's completed. Um... Renfield. The film is being directed by Chris McKay, stars Nicolas Cage and Nicholas Holt, based on an original pitch by Robert Kirkman. Okay, so you, you, you've heard about this movie. It's, you know, a fantasy horror comedy, I guess, or whatever. Well, anyways, when seeing Cage's bizarre attire, the internet blew up, of course. It was bound to. Uh, but for me, I saw his suit, I saw his rings and all this other stuff, and it reminded me of the Addams Family Mansion uh, from the original series from the 60s, how if you saw like the, the the mansion in color, the interior was all pink. And the reason why was because when they filmed it, the furniture in the rooms then would have distinct features because you're filming in black and white, so you have to do different things with shadows and lighting and whatnot. So I see Cage in this loud red suit with an infinity gauntlet of rings, and right away that was the first thing that popped into my head. And I mean, I saw some shitty things said online about how this movie was going to be a dumpster fire. It's going to be trash. It's not. I mean, here we go, judging things before we've even seen it. But my first reaction was, oh, this is going to be a black and white film. I see what we're doing. Because, I mean, even Cage, like, they've even painted up his face. And just the colors, the, the, what do they say, the color palette or whatever. It, the way it looks, I'm like, oh... I so have a feeling this is going to be a black and white film when this is all said and done. So, I don't know. I think same rule applies here. The film is scheduled to be released on April 14th, 2023. So, I guess we'll know by then. You know, if the hunch by some of us is right or completely wrong. The thing is, I almost feel... I I saw that the release date was April 14th. And I'm like, should have released it on April 1st in 2023. Because then that would have been the perfect April Fool's prank to play on everybody. But hey, is what it is. Big business news, guys. I never talk about business on here. You know, I'm not a business type guy. I don't care about Wall Street and all that other shit. But anyways, here's the thing. The deal is finally done. And for those of you who were following along, MGM... Uh, for some time now, there was this like murmuring rumor about MGM was going to be acquired by Amazon. Well, it's happened for $8.5 billion, and it also means a lot of horror franchises now have a new owner uh, with very deep pockets, of course. I mean, Amazon's not afraid to spend money. If you've watched any of their series, they, you know that. The thing is, is that now, okay, so MGM bought out by Amazon. How does that affect horror fans, you ask? Well, it means, think about it. So we have titles like Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Silence of the Lambs, Poltergeist, Amityville Horror, Pumpkinhead, Species. There's a whole slew of them. Return of the Living Dead, although I hope they do not touch that one. (laughs) But anyways, 
Here's the thing. So you remember way back when I was talking about Alien Xmas, I said the the Kyoto Brothers wanted to, you know, either remake or do a sequel to their original Killer Clowns film. I believe they were leaning more towards sequel. Well, now maybe this happens. And they don't have to rely on Netflix. I mean, I know that by releasing Alien Xmas, they were kind of hoping that Netflix would, you know, cling on to their brand. But now Amazon owns owns them. So... Who knows? Maybe we finally get that Killer Clown sequel or the Pumpkinhead remake that, you know, has been rumored for some time. Maybe that now has a new home. Who knows? This could be awesome. Like I said, Return of the Living Dead, leave it alone. Don't touch it. The movie is fucking perfect. It doesn't need to be remade. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've really lightened up over the years. You guys, for those of you who have listened to this show over time, you know, like when I first started this show, I was that guy that was like, stop remaking everything. I've kind of lightened up on the whole remake thing because in some cases it actually does work. Um, But Return of the Living Dead really, honestly, is a movie. I don't care if you think it's too trashy or whatever, it's too comedic or needs to be scarier or blah, 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 whatever. It's perfect. Just leave it alone as it is. Don't touch it. Leave that one. Uh, Moving on to another streaming service, Uh, HBO Max. So, as some of you may have heard, Arkham Asylum from the Batman universe is going to HBO Max. And it's based um, on the news that a spin-off series from the Batman movie is now currently in development. It was originally supposed to be focused more on Gotham PD, but has now evolved into what potentially could be a horror or thriller-based series that's going to revolve around the villains and the complex patients of Arkham Asylum. You know, if you think about it, Arkham Asylum is sort of like Gotham's very own haunted house of sorts, right? Now, speculation's already, you know, popping up online whether Robert Pattinson will be seen in this series or not. Still kind of up in the air. I wouldn't say it's completely out of the question. They could do it in small doses. Kind of like, uh, what was it? The, The Suicide Squad movie, the first one? How Ben Affleck's Batman was in that film for, like, what, a mere... 30 seconds or something like that. Maybe they do something like that. I don't know. Uh, you got to figure, you know, uh, Marvel is, they're coming out with Morbius very soon. Uh, Blade is on its way and stuff like that. And DC also always wants to lean towards the more darker themes and stuff like that. So this, in a way, could be like a match made in heaven or hell, depending on where you think the party is. But DC doing a dark series on Arkham Asylum, this is just... It's like, you know, like water, air, earth, and fire. Like, I mean, it just it just works. It sounds like it could be really good. So I'm kind of on board with this right now. Uh, Matt Reeves uh, was talking about it, uh, you know, while doing the rounds, talking about the new Batman movie and whatnot. And this came out, actually came out a few weeks ago, but I wasn't sure it was complete truth. So <laughs> I sort of held off on talking about it for a bit. But yeah. I honestly like the idea of Arkham Asylum getting its own series. I mean, and think about, like, even in the video games, Batman Arkham Asylum. That was a great game. It was the first entry into that whole Arkham universe and whatnot. And it was loved by everyone. So, I don't know. I just think this is going to work. Finally, Evil Dead Rise. I haven't talked much about it recently, but hey, let's talk about it. Officially been rated R. It's uh, the MPAA has said that Evil Dead Rise is rated R for strong, bloody horror, violence, and gore. Yes. And some language. Okay. Um, To me, that sounds like music to our dead-eyed ears. Uh, The Evil Dead franchise is back and headed to HBO Max this year. The brand new movie from the original trio that started it all. Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, and Robert Tabbert are all producing the film. Lee Cronin, however, is directing. He was handpicked by Raimi to direct the film. Um, And the film takes place in a high-rise and not in the woods this time. I'm kind of curious. I mean, well, you gotta figure. The first two films took place in the woods, and then the third one actually took place back in the medieval ages, so it's not like they... that they haven't branched out of the woods before, you know what I mean? So, this could really work well. Uh, Sam Raimi is also busy working on the new Doctor Strange film, so it makes sense why he got Lee Cronin to direct. And Bruce, well, Bruce really hasn't left the Evil Dead franchise. He's voicing Ash in the new Evil Dead game coming this May. So a lot of good things on the way from a couple guys we love in this fun house of horrors. 
But now it's time to travel back to 1986 again, because I did this last week, for that other movie that shared a title with last week's movie. Um, somewhat. I mean, it, this is the movie that won the rights to have that title, but the question remains, was it deserving of the name? Should this movie have been called April Fool's Day, or should the other one have been called April Fool's Day? Anyways, trailer time out. And when we return, our shared Deadcast experience will visit the movie nicknamed The Slasher to End All Slashers. I still gotta ask the question though, was it really? I don't know, back with April Fool's Day in a splat, kids. Paramount Pictures cordially invites you for a weekend getaway at the party to end all parties. This is the craziest party that could ever be. <coughs> Turn on the lights, cause I don't want to see. April Fool. Welcome to my home. And lifestyles of the rich and undeserving. Wrong. Uh, Join eight privileged guests who are just dying <laughs> to have fun. What is this? The bridal suite? You like it? The ladies. I find it useful. The gentlemen. <laughs> we, we, we did on the first date. The young. Well, basically, I possess a, an essential lack of seriousness. And the restless. <laughs> you are such a jerk. Everyone is having such a good time. It's scary. Something wrong? You're dead. Radio is blasting. Someone's knocking at the door. I'm looking at my girl. Ah! She passed out. Nikki! I'll see you in the door. I'll never see you before. Don't know what it is. I don't want to see the door. April Fool's Day. Get ready to party till you drop. All right, welcome back, kids, from that awesome trailer. I should say, if you guys are waiting in this episode at any time for me to talk about a certain award show that just recently happened, uh-uh, not doing it. I didn't buy into that bullshit. Nothing but a bunch of staged antics that, you know, I mean, seriously, who even watches that award show anymore? Nobody does. They needed to boost ratings somehow, so boom, bang, slap. Yeah, we get it. It's over and done with. Move on. I will say this, though. The Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, right now online, they are doing voting for different movies and whatnot. That's an award show worth checking out. So definitely, if you haven't yet, head over to Fangoria.com and place your votes for your favorite horror movies and favorite scores, favorite special effects and stuff like that, favorite actors and actresses and whatnot. You know, support a genre that, you know, doesn't make a mockery of its fans. Well, okay, I say that lightly because, I mean, this film that I'm going to be talking about, well, some people thought it was a kick in the nards. I don't know, I kind of like what it did, but hey, let's talk about it. April Fool's Day, the movie that actually got that title, Paramount bought the rights and they owned it and this, is, this was their movie. It was released, actually, so this is kind of funny, I'm recording this on March 28th, Monday night. 36 years ago today, on March 28th, 1986, April Fool's Day was released to the world. Well, at least in North America. I know there were other release dates around the world. But in North America, it was released on March 28th, 1986. So happy 36 years there, April Fool's Day. In Germany, the film is actually known as The Horror Party. And what was it in France? It's like The Terror Party. In Mexico, the film's, film's name was Dia de, lo in, de los Inocentes. I know, my, my Spanish is fucking horrible. Anyways, in English translation, it's Day of the Innocence, which is basically another way of saying All Fool's Day. So uh, <laughs> I saw the title. I was like, I'm going to attempt that. It's not going to turn out well, but I will try. Um, the film, April Fool's Day, was directed by Fred Walton, who, uh, he also directed When a Stranger Calls from 1979. Uh, he also did the TV movie When a Stranger Calls Back in 1993. He was also credited for his original screenplay, 
in which the 2006 uh, remake of When a Stranger Calls was based on, the one that was directed by Simon West, featured stars like Katie Cassidy and Tommy Flanagan. Yeah, so pretty much When a Stranger Calls is like what he's really known for and then this movie. Uh, The film was produced by Frank Mancuso Jr. Now this name is... uh, it's pretty well known within the horror genre, obviously, uh, specifically for the Friday the 13th franchise, because he produced parts 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and he also did the Canadian TV series that ran from 1987 to 1990 of the same name, Friday the 13th. There was that whole series and whatnot. He was a producer on that. He also did uh, work on other films, obviously. He did um, Stigmata. That's a great film, by the way. Uh, he did Species and its sequels. Uh, worked on Cool World. It was, came out at the same time around... Uh, same uh, bleh, Around the same time as Roger Rabbit, where it was the whole live action and animation mixed together and whatnot. He worked on the movie Body Parts. Ronan and Hoodlum. Hoodlum was the film that starred Lawrence Fishburne, Tim Roth, Andy Garcia, Chi McBride, William Atherton, and Vanessa Williams. It's actually a really good flick. This movie, April Fool's Day, was written by Danilo Bach, who, before this movie, he wrote the story for Beverly Hills Cop, actually. That's kind of cool. And he was credited on the sequels in the video game of the same name because he created the story for the first one. He also worked on the film Someone Someone to Watch Over Me that was directed by Ridley Scott and starred Tom Berenger and Mimi Rogers. Mimi Rogers from Ginger Snaps. She played the Fitzgerald sister's mother. And uh, before I go any further, I know for some reason my tongue really seems to be tied today. Uh, I keep stumbling on words, so I apologize for that. Anyways, moving on to cinematography by Charles Minsky. And his first film actually came a year before this. He worked on the film Radioactive Dreams. It's a post-apocalyptic kind of film where these... uh, What was the storyline for that, too? I saw it years ago. Um, It's like the two kids have, like, this dream that they're detectives or something. They come out of it, and they're in a post-apocalyptic world, so they sort of try to become those detectives that were in their dreams or whatever. Anyways, this was his second film. And then after that, he would go on to work on films like Pretty Woman, Teen Wolf, The Hitcher, Terminal Velocity, Kazam! with Shaq O'Neal. It's a horrible movie, but when I saw he was part of it, I'm like, I have to mention that. And he also worked on Bull Durham and Congo. Congo's another great little movie. He says as the crickets are chirping. Anyways, uh, music by Charles Bernstein. Uh, 137 credits to his name, which includes films like Invasion of the Bee Girls, Gator, The Entity, Cujo, Deadly Friend, Excessive Force, a ton of TV movies, but of course, where do we know the name Charles Bernstein from? Or Bernstein? It's Bernstein? I never know. Anyways, he's famously known for the original themes and score for... Drum roll, please. No, I, I can't do a drum roll. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, uh, that that iconic Nightmare on Elm Street theme that was prominent in all the movies, TV series, everywhere, video games and whatnot. Yeah, he he's responsible for that. So, I mean, that's right there. That's like the biggest credit you need. Moving on to our starring cast. Starring cast, this movie's kind of like Eternals. <laughs> There's a lot of cast members, but it kind of makes sense in the essence of the film and whatnot. And I will be honest, after a few watchings of this, like, I mean, I've, I've been watching this movie for years and whatnot. After you've seen it a couple times, you actually remember the characters. Like, they're memorable people. They're mem- memorable characters and whatnot. There were some critics in the media that felt that these actors really didn't bring their A-game. Whatever. Shut up. <laughs> some people take themselves too seriously. But I I don't know. I, I like the cast in this movie, so... Let's get right into it, starring with our very, our own leading lady in this movie. She fucking kills it in this movie. Deborah Foreman as Muffy slash Buffy St. John. She's supposed to play twins. She, uh, before doing this, she was in a movie with uh, our own Dracula, Nicolas Cage. 
Uh, she was in Valley Girl. I believe that was in 1985. It was a year before this. 85 or 82? <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm I'm striking a blank on that. Anyways, she was in that film. And uh, then she was in, in 1988, she was in Waxwork with Zach Galligan. Uh, Waxwork is a classic. If you have not seen it, I highly recommend that one. And also, she was in Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat with Bruce Campbell. So she's worked with some of the best names in the biz, like Nicolas Cage, Zach Galligan, and Bruce Campbell. You can't get better than that. Uh, she also did, uh, oh, this is where I got 1982 from, sorry. She also did TV ads for Atari in 1982. And I might note that in this film, originally the character of Muppy and Buffy, the two twins, was supposed to go to Linnea Quigley. Uh, she was uh, originally the the primary focus, but she backed out due to filming conflicts between this and Return of the Living Dead. So, hey, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did. Moving on to Deborah Goodrich as Nikki. And she had small roles on like a lot of TV shows in the 80s and 90s. Uh, shows that included Three's a Crowd, The A-Team. St. Elsewhere, 21 Jump Street, Alien Nation, and Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, so after this, she kind of she did a lot of TV work. Uh, as a matter of fact, quite a, quite a few of the actors here, I, I noticed when I was going through their, their IMDb's and their listings and whatnot, a lot of them did a lot of TV work after this movie. Um, uh, speaking of, Ken O'Land as Rob, Rob Ferris. And he was in one episode of the 1985 series B uh, with Mark Singer, Faye Grant, Jane Badler, uh, Robert Englund. B is an amazing series, by the way. The mini, the two miniseries films are absolutely tops, but the series does not get enough credit. I only ran one season. I think it was like 23 episodes or something like that. 22 episodes. It's awesome, and I don't care what people say. I know people are like, ah, it didn't live up to the miniseries. Who the fuck cares? Like, it still was fun. Uh, Ken was also uh, on the A-Team before doing April Fool's Day. After April Fool's Day, he was also in the movie Summer School, and he was in Leprechaun with Jennifer Aniston. Now moving on to Griffin O'Neill as Skip St. John. He's Muppy's cousin, in quotations. Uh, he had 12 acting credits. He hasn't done a lot, but I have talked about him before because he was in the role of Augie in the movie The Wraith that was released the same year as this movie, actually, uh, 1986. Uh, just briefly, a lot of the reason why he didn't go too much further into acting afterwards, um, around the time that this movie came out and The Wraith came out and whatnot, he, he has been known to have drug problems and substance abuse problems. He was in a boating accident that took the life of Francis Ford Coppola's son. His son was 23 at the time. Um, so he was indicted on that. And then, like Griffin was. And then after that, he kind of just never returned to filming. I mean, he has done a few things, but after that, he kind of he went way under the radar. So uh, moving on to Jay Baker as Harvey Edison Jr., and I love this, that he was also in the TV movie The Incredible Hulk Returns in 1988, the film with Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno, and, wait for it, Eric Kramer as the character of Thor. Yes, Thor was in an Incredible Hulk film back in 1988. For those of you who may not know about these older Marvel products, yes, there was a Thor that existed before Chris Hemsworth. Moving on to Leah Pinsent as Nan. Uh, so Leah is a Canadian actress, primarily known for her work on the Canadian TV series The Industry. Uh, it was also known as Made in Canada. Apparently that was the working title or whatever. Anyways, this series uh, starred uh, names like Rick Mercer. <laughs> Canadians are all like, yeah, we know who he is. <laughs> uh, Peter Kelligan or Callahan? I'm I'm probably saying his name wrong. It's probably Callahan, but it's just spelt very differently. Uh, Janet Kidder, Margot Kidder's uh, sister, I believe. She was also a part of this show, as well as Emily Hampshire. And Emily, 
If you're familiar with that name, she can be seen in the 12 Monkeys series that ran, I think it was on, was it FX or Hulu or something like that? Uh, She was also the voice of Misery on the animated show Ruby Gloom. And yeah, so, but Canadian actress, um, one of few, because this was primarily an American uh, actor's uh, cast, so she was one of the few that was Canadian. Uh, Clayton Rohner as Chaz. He was also in films like I, Madman, uh, Nightwish, which is a really weird movie. Uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I have to mention this. He was in The Human Centipede Part 3, the final sequence. I'm not going to lie. I have not seen this movie. I got through the first one and half of the second and I tapped out. I was like, I can't do these movies. (laughs) So I've never seen the third. I don't know how he is in it. I can't assume it's too good. Um, Who knows? And he was also in a movie uh, called I Was a Teenage Were-Skunk. Yeah. I don't know which is worse, Human Centipede 3 or I Was a Teenage Were-Skunk. And Teenage Were-Skunk, I have actually been curious to check out. It is on Tubi. (laughs) And there's a part of me that's like, do I really want to attempt this? Moving on to everyone's favorite final girl. Um, sort of. Amy Steele as Kit. Uh, a lot of the TV appearances. She was on the A-Team. A lot of these actors were in the A-Team. That's really cool. Uh, Diagnosis Murder, Chicago Hope, Home Improvement. Uh, she was in the show Millennium. But okay, I- I'm obviously over, you know, overlooking the the big one. Where does everyone know Amy Steele from? Friday the 13th Part 2, she was Ginny. Everyone's favorite final girl. Well, I mean, it's up for debate. Some people like, you know, Amy Steele. Some people like the different final girls from the other films and whatnot. I'm all, I'm not going to lie. I'm partial to that part eight, man. I, I don't know why. But, um, yeah, Amy Steele part two, which, I mean, obviously you look at Frank Mancuso Jr. He produced part two of Friday the 13th. Jeez, I wonder how she got this role. Um all right here we go here's the fun one thomas wilson that name ring a bell to you it probably should anyways thomas f wilson as arch arch cummings 142 credits that span from everything from spongebob squarepants to batman the brave and the bold spectacular spider-man to dc's legends of tomorrow he was awesome in that uh, he was on Freaks and Geeks. He was in Gargoyles, Duckman. He was Tony Zuko in the two-part Batman animated series series episodes for Robin's Reckoning, which is a great two-parter. But come on. Again, kind of like Amy Steele, right? Like I overlooked the big one, right? Uh, Thomas F. Wilson. Back to the future. Yep, Biff Tannen. Uh, he also, I should mention, he also voiced Biff in the animated series of Back to the Future that ran from 1991 to 1992. Yeah, but everyone knows him as Biff. I remember even when he got cast for DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and it was like, Biff is coming to DC, and it was, he's always going to be remembered for that role. I mean, naturally, who wouldn't, but he's in this, and it's... It's got to be one of the highlights to watching this movie. I'll get more on in more into that later. But, I mean, it's just, yeah. Finally, I got three names left to go through. Uh, Tom Heaton as Constable Potter. He was in movies like The Accused, The Fly Part 2. Uh, he was in the second part of the It miniseries from 1990. He was in Slither. Uh, quite a few TV appearances in shows like The X-Files, Smallville, Sliders, Millennium, The Crow Stairway to Heaven. And he was in The New Addams Family. Mike Nomad as Buck, and he also worked on films like Cocoon, Friday the 13th Part 6, and Chud 2, Bud the Chud. (laughs) Had to mention that. And finally, Lloyd Berry as our ferryman. And he was also in the awesome film with Tom Selleck, Runaway from 1984. Um... He was in Jumanji in 1995, and he was in Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. The runtime for this movie is an hour and 29 minutes. It's rated R for language, frightening scenes, few violent or disturbing scenes, and substance abuse. The budget was $5 million. The gross was $13 million. The synopsis for April Fool's Day. 
So the story is basically this. When Muppy St. John invited her friends up to her parents' secluded island home for the time of their lives, she forgot to tell them it just might be the last time of their lives. Because as soon as the kids arrive on the island, someone starts trimming the guest list, one murder at a time. And what starts out as a weekend of harmless April Fool's Day pranks turns into a bloody battle for survival. And for this segment of the show, I'm calling this Choke and Dagger. Because, yeah. Okay, so, uh, a few little tidbits about the film first. Uh, I mentioned about Amy Steele. She was cast in the role of Kit. Uh, this was, yes, at the suggestion of producer Frank Mancuso, Mancuso Jr. Um, she was in Friday the 13th Part 2. Now, here is something that is... I love this. I love that someone can sass back. And even as, you know, going back to the 80s, you know, because when... Here's the story. Okay, I'll explain this first. So Amy, one of the other producers, and they won't name them. (laughs) I wonder why. But anyways, she was approached by one of the other producers on the show, whether it be an executive producer or whatever, assistant producer, whoever. Anyways, they walked up to her and they voiced concerns to her because while they were filming this film, the producer claimed, well, you've been putting on a bit of weight while we've been filming this. Now, some people would get super offended. Some people would hashtag body shaming and blah, 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 and all this other shit. Amy just turned around and said, here's the problem. You hired this amazing caterer. Whose fault is this really? Awesome. I love that she didn't even... Like, she didn't even think twice about it. It's like, okay, you want to rip on me because I put on a bit of weight? Well, here, guess what? I'm going to switch the blame and put it on you because you guys hired this caterer who's making this amazing food, and I can't stop eating it. Awesome. I love the switcheroo on that. Now, in the role of Muffy St. John, played by Deborah Foreman, who, like I mentioned, had recently starred opposite Nicolas Cage in Valley Girl, she auditioned for this role. Now... Originally, it was supposed to go to Linnea Quigley, and that's partially because when Deborah Foreman auditioned the first time, eh, they weren't too impressed, right? Then, obviously, Linnea backs out, so they've got to find someone, and Deborah does another audition. She she fought for it. She said, give me one more chance, blah, 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 and apparently, this is even according to Fred Walton himself, the director, he said she totally blew them away. That's awesome, because... When you watch this film, Deborah Foreman is definitely one of the highlights in terms of acting. She really pulls off a good performance in this. And it's awesome that she got the role. Yes, it would have been kind of cool to see Linnea do it. But, I mean, in all honesty, Linnea belongs with Return of the Living Dead. So leave her there. Um, I'm okay with the fact that Deborah got the role in this. Now, in regards to the filming location for this movie... Uh, originally the filming was to take place at Martha's Vineyard and then they were looking at Seattle, Washington, but after some consideration, Mancuso Jr. He actually chose Vancouver, BC, uh, in Canada as the location spot, which then officially made this movie a Canadian horror flick, which I am totally okay with. Uh, however, this is all I, I should point out. This is actually the third of three films that take place on April Fool's Day. I've mentioned two of them. Uh, Slaughter High being one, and then this one. There was actually a third one that was released in 1986, the film Killer Party, which just recently got a Blu-ray release, if I remember correctly, uh, earlier in 2021. I remember that one being re-released. And the thing is, is that April Fool's Day is part of this 1980s cycle of slasher films that... uh, they were based around holidays, commemorative events, you know, stuff like that, commemorative days. Uh, you know, and Halloween came out, and how even before Halloween, there was Black Christmas, but Halloween was the one that really sort of kicked this off. The next thing you know, we had all these, you know, event or holiday themed movies like Prom Night, Graduation Day, My Bloody Valentine. Uh, There was even the spoof Saturday the 14th, Slumber Party Massacre, uh, Friday the 13th, and all its goddamn sequels. And then, of course, you got April Fool's Day, and there was Slaughter High and stuff like that. So, I mean, there were all these movies that 
especially in the slasher genre that always took place on certain occasions or holidays. And this one was just part of that whole barrage of, of films that just insisted, Hey, let's pick an event. I mean, in the nineties we had Leprechaun came out and that started the St. Patrick's day thing. And so, yeah, it just slashers and horror films. They just love their holidays. Don't they? Uh, the score for this film, Actually does have a vinyl release. It was released in 1986 by Maurice Saraban. It didn't see another release until 2015 um, on compact disc. And that's part of Maurice Saraban. They were doing this whole LP to vinyl thing. Or sorry, um, LP to CD thing. Sorry. Uh, And a lot of their older scores that were once on LP, they were releasing them on CD. But it was very limited and whatnot. I'm not going to lie, this this score is a, a bit of a task to find. And considering that 2015, the, the release was very limited. I'm all right with the fact if like Death Waltz Records or Waxwork or whoever, you know, you guys want to re-release this thing, we'd be totally cool with it. Uh, it's a decent score. I mean, it's done by one of the best, Charles Bernstein, right? So, I mean, hey, hello, anyone out there, uh, release it. No, I'm kidding. Um. No, they're not listening to my show, so I don't know why I'm talking to them. Uh, Here's another kind of cool thing about this movie. And I'm only bringing this up because I I wanted to mention the other movie. Uh, So there's two movies that came out in the 80s. Both were about the murder around the house, kind of whodunit comedies that were both made by Paramount Pictures. This one, and then the other one was Clue with Tim Curry. I'm sorry, I had to mention that. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was really cool. Okay, so this movie, this movie, uh, this is probably one of the few times where I'm going to jump to the ending of a film first instead of progressively making my way to the ending because the ending is what gets talked about most when talking about April Fool's Day. I am also going to say at this point right now, if you have not seen this movie and you do not want to be spoiled, stop listening. I don't like saying that because I really don't want people to stop listening to my show, but maybe you should stop listening. Mark, Bookmark this spot in the show and then come back after you've watched this movie because this ending to this movie, granted, you've probably already been spoiled somewhere in the world, in the internet, or your friends talking or whatever, because it is the most talked about point in the movie, but this film... Before I get to the actual ending, this film had an additional sort of alternate ending. Um, in this alternate ending, ending the the film kind of goes dark because uh, they have that skip uh, Muppy's quote unquote cousin. Um, you do find out in the movie that he he's actually her brother, <laughs> but he keeps saying he's her cousin because they have to sell this this plot point, right? Anyways, he apparently in this alternate ending he bursts out of a closet and he actually cuts Muppy's throat. He actually kills her. Um, there's also the other alternate ending where Skip bursts out of the closet. He cuts Muppy's throat, but actually it's a prank. And then all of a sudden, all the rest of the characters come back into the the picture and they're all laughing at her because now they got even with her. Because, like I said, here's the thing with this ending it's fucking brilliant it is a brilliant brilliant ending it pissed some people off but it is a great ending um i should also uh, say that in terms of the alternate endings uh fred walton did explain i should say this he explained it i think it was like in 2016 or whatever that paramount uh pictures it wasn't that they were against that alternate ending it's just because of the fact that they wanted this to remain a comedy and they were they liked the fact that it had a lighter ending they chose not to go with that ending they wanted it to end on a happy note here's the thing i do admit that this movie the twist is amazing okay let let me start by saying that the twist is amazing the fact that you find out that Muppy planned this whole thing because she wants to create this whole B&B thing where people like like people that would come to her hotel or her bread and ba- her bed and breakfast or whatever, that they would also be part of a whodunit kind of game and stuff like that, making it a fun experience and whatnot is awesome. It's a real cool twist when you find out that Buffy doesn't have or Muffy, sorry, does not have a twin sister Buffy and that she's actually here just herself and Skip is her brother and not her cousin and all this stuff. There's all these cool little twists and you're like, oh, this is awesome. 
The thing is, is I do admit that in a world where we really pay attention to continuity issues and whatnot, this movie really relies heavily on everyone else doing their part in Muppy's plan. Because you got to keep in mind, like, she, right from the beginning of the film, we see her, you know, she's playing with the one window that she's loosening it so that, you know, that's where Kit and Rob will come in at the end of the film. You know, she's got the mannequin. She's got the different props and whatnot. She's setting this all up because she's already got it all planned in her head exactly how she wants everything to go. But it takes a lot of direction to make people go one way or another. Like the idea of Skip at one point when he's floating under the um, the the beach house where Kit and Rob are about to get it on. And all of a sudden they notice the body like, you know, drifting by and whatnot. She's really got to hope that they go in that beach house or that gag doesn't work. Um, you know, and there's a lot of that that goes on in this film where it's like, okay, yeah, this is very clever, great gags and everything. But you're really relying on the fact that you will have these people do exactly what they're going to do. Um, so you have to suspend disbelief. And if you can do that, you'll actually really enjoy this film because the acting is solid. Um, it's been noted that with the exception of Jay Baker, the cast got together in Vancouver a week or so before filming. Um, sort of like other films like Return of the Living Dead, where the cast sort of rehearsed their lines and worked together so that when they put it on film, it looked natural. That's why in Return of the Living Dead, you have the most weirdest mishmash of characters, yet they make it seem natural. Well, because they had worked with each other prior to the cameras actually rolling. Well, in this, these characters also did the same thing where, you know, they, they got together at a hotel in Vancouver. This was about a week before and whatnot. And they got to know each other. They they started to actually sort of create a rapport between them so that when it was on screen, you got the illusion that these people had been friends for, you know, many years. Um now, considering the character of Harvey or Hal, as he keeps saying in the movie, uh, is quite the social outcast of the group, actually makes it all right that he was brought in later than everyone else. Um, apparently, they were having a really hard time casting that character. So Mancuso Jr. had stayed behind while everyone else went to Vancouver and he kept looking for an actor and eventually found Jay Baker and boom, he got the role and he does awesome with it. In terms of some of the actors, some of the roles that I really want to sort of highlight or the actors I want to highlight, uh, Deborah Foreman, who plays Muppy and sort of Buffy, uh, I, I basically said, you know, and I'm going to say, I'll, re I'll repeat it one last time. I'm glad it's her in this film and not Linnea, not because I don't like Linnea, because Linnea is awesome to watch, but Deborah really does a great job of playing two characters in one. And, you know, it, playing the distraught character at times, she, she almost seems like she's spaced out and whatnot. She does it very well. Um, I remember, oh, what did I read? She based this off of another character, and I can't remember what it was now. It was from a, an Alfred Hitchcock film that she based it off of anyways. And she really went with it, and it really sells well in this. Like, that's the thing. This movie, the acting was never the problem. Uh, going on to Amy Steele and Ken Olant as Kit and Rob. Again, really solid acting. They actually feel like a real-life couple, which, again, probably paid off that they all worked together and, you know, not, not worked together, but that they practiced and they, they created a friendship before filming this so that, you know, on screen it is so natural. And Amy knocks it out of the park. Uh, pretty much she's the final girl somewhat in this. I mean, both her and Rob both live to the end, so she's not technically the final girl. Uh, in, turn, in, in terms of Ken as Rob, he's really good. I don't want to say he's not. The only thing is, is he has like sort of like these emo moments, um, you know, when he's down on himself about the meeting that he had for his application to the med school. And, you know, they told him he wasn't serious enough. And I don't know, sometimes it feels like it's a little too much, like in terms of his whole emo thing. It's like, dude, stop listening to My Chemical Romance and come back to the 80s. You know, no, but um, but I mean, all in all, like, uh, honestly, aside from that, he does a great job in this movie. But... I got to do this because it would be a fucking crime if I passed up on bringing up about Biff. Biff Tannen. Yes, Thomas Wilson as Arch. 
is the blessing this movie needed to make it so much better. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of The Burning, where we had Jason Alexander in one of his first roles before he would go on to stardom and be George Costanza and all those other awesome roles he's done. Well, anyways, this kind of reminds me of that, except that here's the thing. Back to the Future actually came out before this movie. Back to the Future came out in July of 1985, and this came out in March of 1986. But when you're watching this film, it almost feels like this came before Back to the Future. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm not putting it down. It could be just the lower budget feel of this that, that this movie had. But, I mean, he's still he's a delight to watch. He's so much fun, especially when the gags come into play. Um, he he totally embraces that part of the film. They all do, really. It really shows on the screen, which, I mean, speaking of the April Fool's gags, okay, does this movie deserve the title of April Fool's Day? Absolutely. It really does. Because <laughs> this movie gets that aspect of the tone so well. Um, I mean, S- Slaughter High, yes, it takes place on April Fool's Day. It supposedly was Marty's birthday and whatnot. But Slaughter High was just mean. It was mean-spirited and not very lighthearted at all. Where this movie, totally different story. It's very April Fool's gaggy. I mean, gaggy and not because I'm gagging. But, I mean, it, for example, like you have like the kids, you know, some of them, they're in their rooms. They find all the S&M gear and it like weirds them out or the chairs that tumble over. I mean, and uh, Thomas Wilson is a victim of that at least twice, if not more. Um, you know, you got the water tap that sprays water at the person who's turning on the tap. The exploding cigar that doesn't decapitate the smoker. You know what I mean? Like the doorknobs that fall off the doors. The one scene I still laugh at this to this very day. Kit and Rob go on to bed and they go to turn off the light. And as they turn off the light, another light turns on. Rob gets up, walks over, turns that light off. All of a sudden the overhead light turns on. Then he goes to the light switch, he turns that off, the light by the bed turns back on. Like, how they did that was kind of clever, but it's one of those things where it just, it makes me laugh. And I I love the movie for that. I get that this movie was supposed to be a horror comedy. Yeah, there's no horror here. (laughs) Um, And that scene always makes me laugh. And okay, so... Here's where some of the criticisms came into play with this film. For example, the violence level in this movie is almost null and void. A lot of it is you see the next victim. All of a sudden, someone is standing in front of them. You don't see the killer. You just see maybe their feet or a shadow. And then it cuts to the next scene. There's, With the exception of like when Buck gets his eye socket ruptured because he, the, the boat like supposedly slams into him and his eye looks like it's been gouged out and shit like that. With the exception of that scene, or, you know, like when, um, who is it, is it, uh, oh shit, Nikki? Nikki, when she falls into the well, the well that she says, is this the well that was made by Pocahontas? But anyways, um, when she falls into the well and you're supposed to see Arch's severed head, I mean, aside from those maybe few couple scenes, there's no violence in this at all, there's no gore, but because of the whodunit factor... And, you know, and once we discover at the end of the film that Muffy is actually testing a trial run for her whole B&B idea, the lack of violence, blood and gore eventually all makes sense. Nobody actually gets killed. So, of course, there's no blood and violence because they don't actually get killed. It's more the assumption they get killed. Kind of kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, where you thought you saw everything, but you didn't. Except in this, you don't even think you see it. And Fred Walton always felt that this film had a tragic sense to it because of this. Uh, And he stated that basically the great disappointment was that Paramount didn't know how to release it other than a typical slasher picture. So most audiences went in expecting to see a slasher. That's not what they were going to get. So that's where some of the disappointment came from, because in some cases... There are some people that actually do not like this movie or did not like this movie when it came out, uh, I read one re- one review where a person actually said that they felt the movie's ending was a cop-out and that it was a slap in the face of horror fans. For me, I think that's taking it a bit too hard. I mean, I don't know. I kind of like the idea that when you go into this movie, you think you're getting one thing and then you get something else. Um, I like the misdirections. I like the mislead to it. Because especially at that time, in 1986, slashers were the, the fucking, you know, 
they were the all the big craze. And then you have this movie that all of a sudden says, hey, guess what? We're going to do something completely fucking different. I kind of like that. Some people also complained about the lack of blood and gore. But like I said, once you get to that final twist that, hey, this is all just one big April Fool's gag, it makes sense. And once that whole ending is unfolded, it's like, ah, now I get it. But there are some people who really appreciate the movie's wit and tone. I am one of them. Um I read specific quotes. I did this again this week, you know, took quotes off the Internet that I saw different people. Uh, some people, uh, one quote said, if you favor horror satires that deconstruct the mechanics of the genre, like, for example, Behind the Mask or Scream, April Fool's Day stings with originality and fun. Yes, I kind of like that idea that, you know, it sort of takes everything you know about the genre and flips it on its head. April Fool's Day is not the best slasher, but is far from the worst. It's a clever and fresh take on not only an oversaturated genre, but also an intriguing take on one of the most foolhearted days of the year. Yes, that's the other thing. Like I said, Slaughter High does the whole April Fool's Day thing, but it's very mean-spirited. This did it in a kind of a fun way. Let's play with this, you know, this occasion that comes up every year, and at the same time, like this person specifically stated at that time, oversaturated genre. Yes, it, that's exactly what it was. And then there was this comment I saw. <laughs> the person basically said, the "Movie is junk, but very amusing junk." Yes, I, it, it it is. It's it's a garbage film. It's a throwaway flick, but at the same time, it's a lot of fun. Um, and that's the thing. Not every movie has to like blow your mind away. Like. You can just have fun with the movie. IMDb has the film at a 6.1 out of 10, with 6 and 7 being the most common ratings. On Rotten Tomatoes, it stands at a 55% rating. The audience score is a bit lower at 47%, but that's not too bad. Podcast zero rating. I'll put it like this, kids. A movie called April Fool's Day basically pranks out its audience with a clever ending, and people are mad they got punked by this, actually? Like, really? You got upset about this? This is awesome. Like, think about it. The title alone says it. April Fool's Day. April Fool's. Haha. <laughs> I mean, I have a feeling that the unsilent minor- minority, because seriously, it's a minority on this. They got mad because they got fooled. You know, it, by a movie that literally, literally telegraphed the ending to them. You should have realized it from the title of the movie. But, you know, April Fool's. Haha. <laughs> younger me you know i didn't catch all the subtle oh hey we didn't actually see their actual death so they mustn't have died moments but let's be fair about this even in 2022 some people they recently even fell for that gag in squid game Mm-hmm. get what i'm saying i mean if you know what i'm talking about then you probably saw the show uh you didn't see their death they probably didn't die and how how many superhero movies and tv shows have been doing this Oh, we didn't see a body, so they're not dead. Like, that's what happened with this movie. Except back in 1986, that wasn't as common. Um, The actors in this are natural. They're appealing to the eyes, yes. A very pretty cast. But not in an unnatural kind of feeling. Like, I mean, yes, it is a bunch of pretty white privileged kids and i mean they even make that comment in the movie they you know they're like we're privileged we should be enjoying life yeah i love the fact that they kind of hammered that in there that like yep we know what we are it's very self-aware again doing this even before scream did it um but again because these actors got together you know prior to filming and they decided we're gonna we're gonna build a rapport we're gonna build a little community within ourselves and then we're gonna bring that to the screen it works awesome it's a 90 minute movie with solid pacing it's very quick never feels like it's overstaying it's welcome it's a fun little movie that even after you discover the twist it can still be enjoyed time and time again I love going back to this movie because I love catching all the things I didn't catch the time before you know there's a lot of subtle hints like between Muffy and Buffy, the one that, and I didn't even notice this till I read it on the internet. Her fingernail polish never changes, it never changes color. Where if they were twins, they probably would have had different colors to distinct between the two of them. At least, okay, maybe someone's, you know, stretching it a little on that. But again, there's little clues. Uh, the opening, the opening actually 
sells the whole fucking thing when you see Muppy moving the mannequins and playing with the window and stuff like that. When you see all that, it's like, wow, they actually like l- telegraphed it right in the first 10 minutes of the movie, but you don't catch it till you know the ending, and then you go back and you watch it again, and it's like, oh, clever. How do I feel about this movie? I feel it's seven ding-dongs out of ten. <laughs> Uh, because there's that line about the ding-dongs. But anyways, yes. I feel it's a 7 out of 10 for me. Uh, definitely not the... I agree with that comment where the person you know, basically said, it's not the best slasher you've ever seen, but it's clever and it's fun. And that's the thing. I think sometimes, yes, the horror genre, you do want to be scared and you want to have you know your jumps and your quivers and all that sort of stuff. But sometimes it's fun to just sit back and have a, have a laugh and that's what this movie brings I totally love it for it 7 out of 10 and on that note time to end this show kids it's the ending of all endings yep never coming back yeah right April Fool's because uh, <laughs> if you didn't realize when I said that way at the beginning of the episode where I said this is the episode to end all episodes yeah okay obviously I'm fucking lying uh, April Fool's uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah because I have a, I already have next week's episode already lined up it's another gag fest <laughs> because I don't know I'm just you know after the last couple of years you know and just this even the beginning of this year like I was saying last week this weather has really kicked my ass but anyways I need to have a laugh so anyways first off first things first where to find the podcast you guys know you listen to this every week, you know, Spotify, Apple, Google, uh, FM Player, Podcast Addict, Podbean, all of them. That's where you find it. Yep. If you don't, if you want to, you don't have to, you know, that I'm not one of those guys that's like, make sure to like and subscribe. No, uh, if you don't want to listen, you don't have to, but you got this bar. So I'm assuming you'll be back next week. I hope. Uh, but yeah, different podcasts streaming apps and whatnot you can actually go to redcircle.com look it up there you can google it i'm not gonna lie i tried googling it myself i wanted to know if it actually came up pretty quickly and it does it's you put what lurks behind podcast zero and google search it's the first thing that pops up so does that mean i've made it like am am i finally successful anyways social media facebook instagram twitter yeah, I'm on those. You can email me at whatlurksbehindpodcastzero at gmail.com. As I said earlier, make sure to check out the new Ghost album, Impira. Fucking amazing album. I still say right now, it currently stands as album of the year for me. Whether or not that lasts, we'll see what other artists release this year. But Next episode. Next episode is another movie that i think well i mean that's the thing people should have known what they were getting into with that one but whatever it's an all-star cast it's a movie that actually i thought i already reviewed on this show i went looking back and i'm like i haven't done this movie i thought i had unless i'm completely blind and just didn't see it in my episode list but starring jeff goldblum and ed begley jr yes have you seen this movie gina davis was in it too uh, Kramer from Seinfeld, Michael Richards, he's in it. Uh, Jeffrey Jones is in this movie. I I won't even have to do a starring cast next week. I'm doing it now. <laughs> uh, Transylvania 65,000, kids. Have you ever seen this movie? If you haven't, I highly recommend you see it before I review it because there's a lot of fun little factoids that come with this movie. And it's uh, another of those VHS classics that i saw when i was a kid and i absolutely still love it to this day much like this movie april fool's day april fool's day was a movie i saw on vhs first um because actually here's another factoid about the movie that i didn't add in my review but because it was so light on the violence it actually became a late night cult classic especially in the states uh probably like usa up all up was up all night uh i think um I remember correctly it was on monster vision it was on always on late night tv because it didn't have much violence so they didn't have to cut the movie very much aside from the language um and the quote-unquote sex scene but you don't even see anything there's no nudity in this film like that's the thing like this movie 
Uh, if you're doing like drive-in totals, there's no violence, there's no nudity. It's actually a very tame movie, just a lot of language and supposedly frightening scenes. But anyways, thanks for tuning in, kids. This uh, Two weeks in a row! Hey, look at that. Yay! I actually stayed true to that. I know. I'll shut up now. You need to shut the fuck up! Hey, lick my plate, you dog dick! You're too